Amen. Our sermon passage today is from the book of Acts chapter 1. And we're going to spend a week here before we jump back into our sermon series on the Gospel of John. What I want to do is kind of do a wrap-up of Easter. Not a wrap-up of Easter. The Easter was last week. We made some incredible claims about what Jesus has accomplished. What I want to do this week is focus in on what that means for the rest of our lives. How do we march out as people who are witnesses that Jesus is alive and it changes everything? So what we're going to do is actually take a look at the very first witnesses of this message of his resurrection, the disciples. So turn with me to uh, Acts chapter 1. We'll be starting in verse 3. This is God's word, good, beautiful, and true. He presented himself, that's Jesus, alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the time or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, your word. Thank you that in it we see a picture of what you're up to and who you are. And because we see this revelation of who you are and what you're doing, we uh, in a sense, get a revelation of ourselves. We understand ourselves in you and what we are to be about in this world because of what you've shown us in Jesus. So I pray these moments move upon our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Um, open the eyes of our hearts to see the beauty and majesty of Jesus and what it means for us to live in light of his victory. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Um, maybe if you follow uh, kind of science news, you'll remember a couple of years ago, this telescope uh, made big news. It was called the Event Horizon Telescope, and uh, it was April, I think, of 2018, maybe 2019. But what happened is suddenly it popped up on the news that the Event Horizon Telescope and the scientists that were related to it had taken a picture of a black hole. And this was huge news, huge news. Now, I've, we've probably all heard about the concept of a black hole, but the reality is until this picture came from the telescope, we had never seen one. What had happened is astrophysicists had uh, guessed, um, you know, scientifically, they had postulated that black holes existed because there were spaces, uh, there was places in space where light didn't work the way it's supposed to, um, but we never had definitive proof we had guesswork. We had equations um, for, for years upon years, but never proof. And suddenly, there was this picture, and there it was. Confirmation of all these postulated ideas from, from astrophysics uh, for years upon years. And it was huge news. It was everywhere. I saw it on science blogs. I saw it on mainstream media. I saw it on local TV. Big news. Big news. But the next day... The next day, it was gone from the news cycle. The Event Horizon Telescope confirmed this thing that scientists had been waiting to confirm for years upon years. It's going to change textbooks. Um, it's this, you know, once-in-a-lifetime scientific discovery, but it lasted in the news cycle about a, about a day. 
By the next day, our collective uh, attention had turned to something else. Um, and even though it was a big deal, it was gone. It's gone from our minds. You know, last Sunday, we, re- we celebrated Easter, the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. And we made some big claims. I mean, Scripture makes these claims. That death is swallowed up in the victory of Jesus. That Jesus was raised from the dead for our justification before God. And that because he uh, was resurrected from the dead, that death is not the end of our story either. These are huge claims. And when we finished worshiping on Easter Sunday, we left our worship services or we clicked off the, the window there and we went back to our world, right? We went back to our world of cancer diagnoses and funerals. We went back to our world of COVID-19 We went back to our world of injustice and oppression and sin, a world where death and sin still seem very much to be in power, despite what we said about the resurrection of Jesus. Now, there should be an uncomfortable tension there. If you feel it, you should feel it. Um, How do we, how do we live as people uh, with lives founded on these claims of victory in the resurrection of Jesus in a world that screams at us to believe other things, screams at us to believe lesser things. How do we live lives founded on the resurrection of Jesus in a world such as ours? And how can we keep the resurrection of Jesus from being like the event horizon telescope picture of this black hole, big news today, big news on Easter, but gone from our minds and hearts tomorrow? Now, our a passage this morning actually addresses that head-on in the first century A.D. <laughs> um, in a way that I think is helpful and freeing for us. And what I think we'll see as we walk through this passage is this, that the kind of change that needs to happen in our hearts and in the world can only happen through the empowering presence of God. It can only happen through the empower, empowering presence of God. And because of this, we can live in great confidence knowing that God will supply all that we need, and that he will work in his grace beyond our abilities. So what I want to do is take a look at four different points to kind of get our mind around this, and the first is this. Number one, it is not enough to be right. It is not enough to be right. Let's set the scene. We're at the beginning of the book of Acts. The apostles are gathered together with Jesus. This is just after he's been resurrected from the grave. It's the exciting days just after that, and Jesus is appearing to people talks about his 40 days. And during these 40 days, the apostles get a front row seat to the very best ministry training in history. (laughs) Jesus, the resurrected Jesus himself, spending 40 days with them, teaching them about what? The kingdom of God. Now, this is the gold standard of ministry preparation. This is Jesus, the king of God's kingdom, giving them the ins and outs about what his kingdom is all about, right? And then he orders them to do something. And and this is a little bit shocking. Notice what he says. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait. Wait. This is a bit surprising. Why wouldn't Jesus end his seminar, teaching on the kingdom of God, and let them loose like a team at halftime from the locker room in the championship game? Right? He's just giving them all the information that they need. He's taught them well. Why not open the doors and let them go? Why tell them to wait? 
Again, this is like a coach giving an inspiring halftime speech and then telling his team, as they hear the buzzer going off, telling them the second half is about to start, telling them to, you know, stay in the locker room. Don't leave yet. Well, he tells them to wait because this is not enough to be right. It's not a, enough to have all the factual answers in this world. We like to think otherwise. I do. I think we like to think if we can get our doctrine right, if we can get our thoughts about God and the world exactly right, if we can get all our blueprints for ministry or, or what we want to do as a church straight, then we can go out into the world and watch transformation just happen, right? If we get everything right in our head, intellectually, and understand it, then we can just watch the transformation happen. But that's not how it goes. Jesus makes that clear in verse 7. After they ask about when Jesus is going to restore the kingdom, he says this, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed on his own authority. Why is it not enough for them to know? Because it's not enough to be right. The kind of change that God is bringing about in this world doesn't just happen because we get everything in our head right. Now Jesus, notice here, he doesn't say that that knowledge of the timing of the restoration of all things is unavailable. He says that that information is not for them. Now how great, imagine with me if we did know, if we knew exactly when Jesus is going to make all things new. That would be fantastic for ministry planning. It would be fantastic for all kinds of planning, right? If we knew we had X amount of days, we could say, well, we need X amount of dollars to do the X amount of things, and we could fashion it up and come up with this exact precise budget. It would help us with planning in big ways. But Jesus says here, it's not for them to know, because following Jesus in this world is not about knowing the most stuff. It's not. It's not about collecting knowledge, even true knowledge. Now, I wish it was. I wish I could make change happen in my world. I wish I could make change happen in my own heart by collecting the most facts, almost like a spiritual trivia pursuit. Like if I memorized the most memory, most Bible verses, then, you know, everything would work out. But that's a deadly lie. This idea that we uh, can affect change in this world just by getting all the right information. It's a deadly lie. It's a deadly lie because it leads to what? It leads to a horrible fear that you're not going to know something. Or it leads to intellectual snobbery where you look down on other people because they don't know as much as you do. So let me tell you, let me tell me this morning, it is not enough to be right. It is not enough to know the most things. The kind of change that needs to happen in our hearts and in this world cannot happen just by knowing the most stuff. That leads me to my second point. It is not enough to have good intentions. It's not enough to have the right intentions. Back to our passage. It says Jesus has been teaching them about the kingdom of God, and he says to wait because the Father is going to send the Holy Spirit to them. And they get incredibly excited. Jesus says this, the Holy Spirit is going to be given to them, and they get incredibly excited, which is why they ask in verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, these were all Jewish men, um, and this is not nationalistic fervor taking over. They're not saying, you know, will we get to be the best and squash everybody underneath them? They ask this question, will you at this time be restoring 
the, the kingdom to Israel because they know that God establishing his kingdom, making all things right, is how justice comes. <laughs> that he's going to make crooked. He's given this promise. It's all throughout the Old Testament. Jesus talks about it in his ministry, that he'll judge things rightly. That that which is crooked will be made straight. That that which is wrong will be made right. And so the disciples asking this are asking this in the excitement of of good intentions, the excitement of wanting to see this world of sin made right, of wanting to see people set free from the whole things that hold them bound. And they know what Jesus means when he says the Holy Spirit will come on them because they remember way back at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. At the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus preaches a sermon in his hometown church the synagogue there in Nazareth. And he gives what we could call his mission statement as the Messiah. And this is what he said. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. So the Holy Spirit is on me, and he has anointed me to what? Proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is telling the disciples that the same spirit that rested on Jesus to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoner, uh, sight for the blind, the acceptable year of the Lord, the same Holy Spirit is going to be given to them. The Holy Spirit that empowered Jesus as Messiah to do these things is going to be given to them. And now they're going to be anointed in Jesus' name to step out like he was and to proclaim that all things are going to be made new. What's happening here is the disciples are longing, not for nationalistic fervor. They're longing for justice to be done in this world. They're longing for bondage to be removed in their society. And so they ask Jesus, who has conquered death in his resurrection, since you're sending us the Holy Spirit, does that mean that justice is going to happen now? That you're going to use us? And we're going to be a part of seeing this happen? All things made right these are the very best of good intentions. But Jesus makes clear to them, to them here, the kind of change that needs to happen in their world cannot happen just through good intentions. You know, it may sound odd to us, but Jesus tells them here that ultimate justice is going to be delayed. But not because of wicked reasons. This isn't God in collusion with the sin of the world. Jesus says that ultimate justice is being delayed here so that his grace might shine. That this, his grace shining into the world, inviting people to lay down their arms and come into his kingdom, will happen through them being witnesses of his resurrection. That's what's going to happen as the apostles are witnesses. They're going to be given the Holy Spirit to declare the victory of Jesus and invite people in out of the kingdoms of, the kingdoms of this world into the kingdom of God. Because as we know, as we know, we can look through Scripture, Romans 3, there are none righteous, not even one. We're all victims of sin. We're all perpetrators of sin and selfishness and violence. But God, in His mercy, in sending Jesus, doesn't just desire to simply visit our world with judgment. He intends to come in grace and, uh, and create a community of people who are witnesses to his grace, 
a community of people, a church that fling open the doors of his kingdom and invite people in. We know in Jesus that God's glory will be revealed, not just in his righteousness, uh, showing his justice against sin, but God's glory is revealed on the wicked and ungodly, us being shown his grace. You know, I really wish we could get change to happen just by getting our intentions right, our motivations. If Maybe if we could work up enough compassion in our hearts or we could work up enough love in our hearts, then we'd see the change we want to see. You know, we like to think that even about our intimacy with God, I think. We think if maybe, maybe if we just loved God enough, we'd really grow as Christians. If we could work up enough love and good intentions in our heart, we wouldn't struggle with sin or selfishness anymore. But that's a deadly lie. It's a deadly lie that leads to hiding, Right? Because think about it, if we're convinced that the real source of our frustration is that we just aren't loving enough, then we're going to cover up and we're going to hide behind false love. We're going to pretend that we love. We're going to try to work hard to make ourselves love. Or we're going to look down our noses at others who aren't as plugged in to what's going on in the world as we are. Now don't get me wrong. Part of following Jesus in our world is a growing longing for justice in this world. And that's part of what it means to become more and more Christ-like, is to become more and more compassionate to the true circumstances of people's struggle. We become people who identify with the oppressed people of the world. We become people who use our resources, what we have for the love of others. And this longing for justice is one with godly roots. Don't deny that. But it is not enough to have the right intentions. It is not enough to bring the change that needs to happen in this world about through getting our intentions right. And that leads us to our third point. It's not enough to work as hard as you can. Look at verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, the mission that Jesus has for his disciples is no small thing. Notice, there are going to be witnesses in Jerusalem, so the city that they're in, in Judea and Samaria, the regions that are just adjacent to Jerusalem, and to the ends of the earth. This small collection of people are going to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. It's no small thing. It's a mission that's too big for them, whether it's the 11 apostles gathered here, or it's the 3,000 people that are added to the church in Acts chapter 2, or it's the 2.2 billion people who claim to be Christians in our world today. It's a mission that's too big, because trying to do God's mission, witnessing to his victory in Jesus, trying to do his mission in our own power is like trying to run a regular car uh, on diesel gasoline. It'll work for a little while, but eventually it's going gonna, it's gonna to burn out, right? It's going to stop working altogether. But we like to think that if we just work harder, if we put our head down and we barrel through, if we really work hard, then everything will be as it should. That if we work hard enough, that we can make the change that needs to happen in our hearts and in this world happen, right? If there were only more hours in the day, if, there were only, if we were only more organized or if we just had more energy, then we could figure out the right formula, right? 
we could figure out exactly the right formula and have maximum impact on the world. But you know what? That's, that's a deadly lie. Why? Because we're limited human beings, and that's not a problem to solve. Uh, we're limited, period. It's part of what it means to be human. Um, and if we try to put our heads down and barrel through, we're going to run out of steam. We're going to burn out. We're going to waste away, right? Fatigue sets in. Fatigue sets in and we become bitter and burdened down, even doing good things. We wind up spinning our tires, stuck in a rut, because we can't do it all, and we aren't intended to. God doesn't ask us to be, repent for being limited. Um, if anything, he asks us to repent for trying to overcome those limitations. Let me tell you, your hard work is not enough. My hard work is not enough. Our hard work together, really barreled, barreling down, pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and getting at it, it's not enough. The kind of change that needs to happen in this world can only happen through God's Holy Spirit. The empowering presence of God with us becoming our motivation, becoming the way we thrive and flourish in life, coming back time and time again to the worthiness that is ours and the love of Jesus for us. That is enough. Not getting everything right, not getting all of our intentions right, not working as hard as, our, as we can. It's enough day in, day out to come back to this uh, fountain of grace that is ours in Jesus that'll never run dry. And that leads us to our fourth point. It is enough. It is enough to depend upon Jesus. Now, maybe you've heard of Elizabeth Holmes. It's a name that meant a lot for my generation. She was touted up until a couple of years ago as the next Steve Jobs, my generation's Steve Jobs. She had dropped out of Stanford University as a freshman, and she had raised a bunch of money for a medical company that she had started called Theranos. And what she was trying to do was develop this machine that through one drop of blood, little you know, pinprick on your finger, could diagnose tons and tons of diseases. And it would change the world, right? That, that would be absolutely world-changing. If you had a machine that could diagnose on one drop of blood, gone would be you know, the trips to Quest Diagnostics or somewhere to get a bunch of blood drawn out to run just one test. They'd be able to take these machines into uh, poverty-stricken areas that don't have access to medical care. And it, you know, shift the medical landscape altogether. Even Walgreens bought in. They became a partner, gave a lot of money to Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes. But here's the issue. Sounds like a great idea, right? Sounds like a really great idea. Here's the issue. Theranos, and all their work, all their employees, all their time, despite all of their claims, never had a working machine. It was all a fraud. It was all a fraud. They never had a working machine, but they kept working at it. They kept working at it. They hired the very best scientists and designers that they could find. They worked ridiculously long hours, and they pushed and pushed, only convinced if they worked hard enough or they had uh, good enough intentions, they could make this happen, that the technology would catch up to their claims. But it wasn't enough. It wasn't. Despite their good intentions, despite all the money they had to throw at the problem, despite all their hard work, it wasn't enough, and they were eventually exposed as frauds. The company was sued into bankruptcy, and Elizabeth Holmes is facing criminal charges, possible um, prison time. 
Now, I think that in life and as a church, as Christians, we often act like Elizabeth Holmes. We look around the world and we see the things we want to uh, see changed. We see the good things that we want to happen in our world. And we have this seemingly impossible mission as a church to be witnesses to Jesus, to love others really well. And all of our power, all of our knowledge, all of our good intentions keep falling short. But we keep our heads down, right? And we push through and we try really hard because we think underneath it all that that's going to be enough. We only just got to know something else, read another book. We gotta chase after something else. We gotta work harder. But we secretly live in fear that we're gonna be exposed and shown as frauds, that we really aren't as smart or as good or as powerful as we seem. But the truth is, friends, that we don't know the half of it. Because we aren't anywhere near smart enough or good enough or power powerful enough to make this mission of loving God and loving others happen. We can't do it. Feel encouraged yet? <laughs> but here's the good news. Here's the good news this morning. God doesn't just give us good ideas. He doesn't give us good advice. He doesn't give us 10 simple ways of maximizing your effectiveness or seven uh, habits of highly effective people. When it comes to living lives in this world, committing to loving God and loving others, God gives us himself. Not just advice. He gives us himself. And the work that, can, that started in Jesus continues through his Holy Spirit, meaning his work in us is a continuation of what Jesus started. And the God who so loved the world that he sent his only son continues to show his love by sending his Holy Spirit, his empowering presence that fills the church worldwide across all of its diversity, uniting us to one another and we, as small creatures, small, sinful, rebellious, selfish, weak, limited, we are swept up into something bigger than ourselves. We're swept up into the life of God. And we are invited to find Him as our source of life, our source of flourishing, our source of thriving in this world. And so in all the ways that we can't measure up in what we know and what our good intentions and our hard work, He is enough and we are invited to come back to Him time and time again, over and over again. That's what it means for us to be baptized in the Holy Spirit as it speaks about here. That's what it means for us to be uh, to receive the Holy Spirit. It means that God is with us, that we're empowered by Him, that we're enabled by Him. And friends, that is enough to bring about the change that needs to happen in our hearts to bring about the change that needs to happen in this world, Jesus with us is enough. So hear me clearly this morning. Don't get me wrong. Knowledge is incredibly important. To say that our knowledge and having everything right isn't enough isn't to say that it's not important. Knowledge is incredibly important. Our motivations are incredibly important. And putting our energy toward the task of valuing what God values and loving what He loves in this world is incredibly important. But all of those are fruit, are fruit of the Holy Spirit. Those aren't the root of the Holy Spirit. Those aren't the things that, that propel us forward. They're not. Our knowledge, our intentions, our hard work, 
They are fruit that spring from what Jesus has accomplished for, for us, not roots of our identity. They're not the source. The source that transforms hearts, minds, and wills is God's empowering presence in His Holy Spirit. So the story of the gospel going out from here in Acts 1 through these gathered apostles, the story of the gospel going out, the story of lives and communities transformed, is not just the story of 11 guys who had good organizational skills and really could motivate people. It's the story of God's Holy Spirit bringing life to dead places in this world. It's God at work calling people to himself. It's God at work setting people free, giving forgiveness, giving transformation, giving hope to our world. That's what's going on here. We're made new, spiritually alive, through what? The Holy Spirit. We're bound together as one with one another, through what? God's Holy Spirit. We are continuously guided back to Jesus time and time again by God's Holy Spirit. We are told by the Holy Spirit that we are God's children. It's confirmed to our hearts. We're prompted to pray by His Holy Spirit. We're grown into people who are identified by love, by joy, by peace, by patience, by kindness, by goodness, by self-control. All this fruit of the Spirit, they spring from what? God's empowering presence with us. Not from our hard work, not from our knowledge, not from our good intentions. So we need not fear our limitations. As I've already said, we need not fear our imitations, or limitations as individuals or as a church. Because at the end of the day, it's not about how impressive or resourced or motivated or smart we are. It's about Jesus, period. It's about Jesus. This is the story of Christ Church done. The story of Christ Church done will not be a story about how some friends gathered to start a new religious organization. It won't be a story that's just uh, can be explained in you know social definitions and categories. The story of our church here in this city, in this corner of Harnett County, the story of this church will be the story of God's Holy Spirit bringing life to dead places right here. And in that way, it's a continuation, it's a resounding echo of the bigger story of God's work and Jesus to bring forgiveness, transformation, and hope to our world. That's true of us as a church. That's true of us individually as well. The story of our faith, of us coming to Jesus, is not us pulling our, ourselves up by our bootstraps to achieve fulfillment. It's a rescue story. It's a rescue story of God's Holy Spirit doing a creative work in my heart and your heart, one that spills out to every part of our lives. So, what are some takeaways here? It's not enough to be right. It's not enough to work hard. It's not enough to have the right motivations. It's enough to depend upon Jesus. What are some takeaways for us? Well, here's just a few. Here's just a few. The first is this. As a church, we begin to bathe everything in prayer. If it's really God at work through His Holy Spirit in us, then we come back to Him time and time again in prayer. And what's some ways we can do this? Well, I send out a weekly prayer guide to everybody on our email list, and I post it, or tend to post it on uh, social media as well. And that's a simple prayer that can be prayed in 10 seconds. It's meant to be a springboard. Um, but maybe uh, in bathing everything in prayer, we make a list of everybody we know in the church, and we commit to pray for them. Maybe not every day. Maybe that won't work out with our schedule, but we pray for one another regularly. And we pray maybe with one another. We call each other. We pray with each other. And maybe we do that not just within our church. We do that with our coworkers, with our family, with our friends. We make a list. 
students in our class, uh, other players on our baseball team. We make a list of people and we commit to regularly pray for them. Why? Because God answers prayer. And it's Him at work anyway, right? Now leads me to my second one. We, we won't just pray, but we can pray with confidence. Why? We pray with confidence and trust God with the results. Because we can't change anyone's heart. We, we can't change our own heart. But God can. And He does. And He will. Uh, another idea here, another takeaway. In our personal life and as a church, let's not make an idol about a, a, out of knowing more stuff or doing more stuff or feeling more stuff. All those are great, right? We study. We ask how we can use our time, money, and resources for the glory of God and the good of others. But we don't fall prey to the dangerous idea that I or you, or y'all, or us together, are ultimately responsible for the lives of others. We're witnesses of Jesus, not witnesses of ourselves. And because it's Jesus at work, we don't have to make an idol out of knowing more stuff, as we've already talked about. And finally, finally, let's follow Jesus into done. Follow Jesus into done, ready to love and work for the good of others. Jesus has set us free from the need to earn our place before God or for, before other human beings. And that means we are freed up. We are freed up to stop living lives in competition with our neighbors. We are freed up to live lives of love and flourishing, knowing that God is at work within us and in our community to bring transformation. So friends, let's love without fear. Let's love without fear. Let's hope without hedging our bets. The God who called all things into being by his word, and upholds all things by his word, sent his word, Jesus Christ, into this world. And through the Holy Spirit, sends his word out through our church, through you and me. And that means that he today is at work. And that is good news. That is enough for whatever lay ahead. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you and your grace is sufficient for us. You are enough and that we stand in your worthiness gifted to us. That we don't have to earn our place in this world, we don't have to earn our place in your sight, that we are gifted uh, a place in your home as your dearly loved daughters and sons. Help us to lean on that. Help us to not make idols out of things uh, that can never satisfy, but let us come to you and find you, find in you our all in all. I pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's sing together.